Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. It's Thursday, the 7th of September. This is Peter Lewis with the latest business and finance news and some great discussion on one of Hong Kong's most listened to financial podcasts, Money Talk. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's headlines, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has asked China to set aside its issues with India and play a constructive role in the upcoming G20 summit in New Delhi. Asked by a reporter at a press briefing if tensions between India and China would overshadow the summit, Mr. Sullivan said that was up to China. But if China wants to come in and play the role of spoiler, of course that option is available to them. But he added that the summit's chair India, the United States and every other member of the G20 would encourage China to come in a constructive way on climate, on multilateral development bank reform, on debt relief, on technology, and set aside the geopolitical questions and really focus on problem solving and delivering for the developing countries. The European Commission on Wednesday listed six tech giants, Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Meta, Microsoft and ByteDance as gatekeepers under its new Digital Markets Act, a groundbreaking piece of legislation that aims to encourage greater competition in digital markets and ensure greater choice for consumers. The term gatekeepers refers to massive internet platforms which the EU views as restricting access to core platform services such as online search, advertising and messaging and communications. Activity in the U.S. services sector rose the most in six months in August. The ISM services PMI unexpectedly jumped to 54.5 compared to 52.7 in July and forecasts of 52.5. At the same time, price pressures intensified with the prices paid component rising 2.1 percentage points to a four-month high of 58.9 in August, suggesting inflationary pressures are building once again. Oil prices continue to rise on Wednesday after climbing above $90 a barrel for the first time in 2023 on Tuesday as Saudi Arabia and Russia said they would extend their voluntary production cuts until the end of the year. Brent crude oil settled up 0.6% at a 10-month high of $90.60 a barrel. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Michelle Lam, Greater China Economist at Société Générale Corporate and Investment Banking. And with a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. U.S. stocks fell Wednesday as soaring oil prices and data pointing to a resilient U.S. economy reignited inflation and rate hike fears. The S&P 500 dropped 0.7% to finish at 4,465. The Dow sank 199 points, or 0.6%, to end at 34,443. The Nasdaq Composite fell for a third straight day, shedding 1.1% to close at 13,872. Chipmaker NVIDIA dropped more than 3%, and Apple shares lost 3.6% after reports that China had ordered officials at central government agencies is to not use iPhones and other foreign branded devices for work and also after the EU designated the company as a gatekeeper. 
the yield on the US 10-year Treasury note hit 4.3% Wednesday as traders bet the Fed will keep interest rates high for a long period as the US economy continues to show signs of resilience. The US dollar index rose to a six-month high of 104.84 Wednesday after the ISM services PMI in the US unexpectedly rose to a six-month high in August while PMIs for China and Europe disappointed, which reignited concerns about the global economy. Chinese and Japanese authorities pushed back against the strong dollar. The Japanese yen depreciated past 147 point uh, per dollar to 147.64, its weakest level in over 10 months, and prompting officials to warn against excessive currency volatility. The current country's top currency diplomat, Masando Kanda, said that Japanese authorities won't rule out any options in the currency markets if speculative moves persist. And the renminbi slipped 0.2% to 7.3160 yuan in Shanghai after breaking through 7.32 renminbi earlier in the session in both onshore and offshore markets. The PBOC cut the yuan's fixing by 186 pips to 7.1969 per dollar on Wednesday. That's stronger than expectations by another record. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index recovered from losses of 1% in the morning session to close 0.1% higher at 3,158. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index also recovered from losses of 1% in the morning, slipping just 7 points to 18,450 by the end of the day. Chinese property giants rebounded in Hong Kong, pushing the Hang Seng Mainland Properties Index up by 3.6% on speculation that Beijing will roll out more support measures for the beleaguered real estate sector. China Evergrande led the gains, soaring almost 83%, and Sunak China surged over 68% to the highest level since early April, bringing its three-day gains to 183%. Shimano soared over 53%, Country Garden jumped nearly 21%, and Longfour was up almost 5%. And in the futures markets this morning, uh, Hang Seng futures pointing to a loss of about 0.2% for the Hang Seng. Looks like it's going to open at about 18,410 this morning. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. I'm joined now on this uh, Thursday morning by Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning to you, Andrew. Morning. And also with us is Michelle Lamb, who is Greater China Economist at Societe Generale Corporate and Investment Banking. Very good morning to you, Michelle. Good morning, Peter. Um, let me ask you first, Michelle, let me uh, get your thoughts on China's economy, particularly this news about China cutting down payments and, and mortgage rates. China announced uh, it's going to allow its largest cities to cut payments for home buyers. It's encouraging lenders to lower rates on existing mortgages. We've seen a huge rally in Chinese property mm. stocks yesterday as a result of that. But how significant is this? I think um, to some extent, it will definitely uh, improve the sentiment in the top tier cities. And as you see over the weekend, uh, the number of transactions in the top tier cities seems to have uh, picked up a little bit. And I think it also shows the willingness of the policymakers that um, even before they are concerned about speculative activities coming up again in the top tier cities, now they are really relaxing the meshes there, so there's a willingness for that uh, to to actually support the property sales. Um, the question here is, um, I'm not sure how long that is going to last, given that um, we know the mentality of 
Chinese households are very investing in properties have completely changed. That's number one. And number two is that um, the low-tier cities, the property sales are still going to be pretty weak because we know that um, the structural factors are not going to be supportive. And uh, at the end of the day, the low-tier cities is actually 70% of the property sales overall. So if we have this large share of uh, sales revenue that is still tanking, I think that's not going to be very supportive to the developers, uh, particularly for those that have um, large exposure to the low-tier cities, such as the country garden, for example. So I think... um, that uh, having said that, I think overall it means that maybe the um, we are close to the bottom of the property sales. Maybe there's still going to be some downside, but last year the sales already dropped thirty percent, and in July and August it dropped another twenty percent. So that means that with all these sharp falls and uh, some supportive measures, maybe we are closer to the bottom. But going forward, I don't think there is going to be strong recovery at all, given the structural factors. So, and I think that also means that um, the property is going to be uh, still a jack on the overall economy. Andrew, what, what are your thoughts here? Is it going to prompt people to, to go out now and buy property again? I'm afraid that I am afraid and I'm delighted. I agree with practically everything Michelle said, but for different reasons. The reasons is I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the core of the problem. The core of the problem is, of course, prices of uh, property have been coming down, and that reduced the cash flows to to the to the property developers, and that led them to near bankruptcy. So, how do you solve this? Well, one thing is to ignore completely what's happening in the property market <laughs> and simply concentrate in rescuing the property developers on the basis that this will stop for the tumbling down of prices. The other part is to increase demand. Now, demand in the property sector comes from two areas. Okay, uh, one is from new buyers, completely new new buyers, and the second is, is existing buyers buying and selling. Moving on. So now, helping helping new buyers is going to be incredibly difficult because, given the dreadful state of the property sector, I'm not surprised if they are going to sit on their hands and wait to see what happens. And as for existing buyers shifting or churning, again, we are going to hit the issue that they're not going to do it at the time that they may very well expect prices to come down. So the policymakers are faced with a completely hopeless task, which ultimately forces them to save and rescue the bankrupt property developers, mm-hmm. which is, oh, it's not an easy thing to do. I- so I'm, I'm very pessimistic going forward because the solutions are being continuously concentrated, possibly at the corner that marks and says, save the property developers. Which is something that Beijing really doesn't want to do, does it? It's, it's resisted that for a long time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Me, me- I'm, not saying, I'm not saying they're doing the wrong thing. But, you know, I mean, try to think it in steps. Again, you say, what is causing all this? The answer is, of course, is weak demand. Yeah. But mm. then how do you increase demand? And then you have segments in the market. And uh, I think new buyers are going to be very, very careful as to what they do. Actually, I also have the suspicion, and I'll finish, that uh, the abrupt change in the COVID policy produced a body shock uh, to, to morale and to expectations. In other words, this very sharp turnaround after three years might have caused people to take a deep breath 
look back and see what has happened these three years and what's likely to go on forward. And the reaction to that is to be incredibly careful. Not as far as the policymakers are concerned, because I'm sure they must have got some pretty good reasons why they reversed it. But the truth is, is that I'm sure this did cause, uh, this produce a, a real body blow. And uh, we can wriggle out of that. Mm. Michelle, one of the things that's really needed to, to, to revive the property sector is price confidence amongst, uh, amongst people in China. They need to have confidence that house prices are going to move back up again. And that's been pretty shattered, isn't it, over the past sort of year or so, because they're not used to experiencing the value of prices, of their home prices going down. Do you think this will help that confidence come back? Um. I think um, one thing that um, China is still different is that it still has to close capital accounts, which means that um, even if um, they have big confidence in house prices, uh, okay, they can put the money in the bank accounts, but at the end of the day, the money needs to go somewhere, and it's not that easy for them to invest in overseas assets. Um, so perhaps I think for the top tier cities, as we can see from the data, it is still the, well, it is falling, but it is still relatively resilient compared to the low tier cities, which means that why I think um, that actually right now they are relaxing the measures in the top tier cities will help uh, to revive the, the sentiment a little bit there at least. Um, but I think for the low-tier cities, is going to be uh, the dynamics is going to be very different, and I don't think the prices are going to. Um, I think in the short term, definitely the price pressures are still coming down, and I don't think it's going to stabilize uh, anytime soon. But at the same time, we've also have some well government policies such as the price floors to stop the low-tier cities from falling, and that's also the reason why. Um, the, some of the developers have struggled to sell, to sell the uh, prices because of these uh, the houses because of these price for price flaws in the low tier cities. Um, so I think um, with this the government restrictions in place, it means that it's even uh, harder for us to see a, a outright bottom in the low tier cities. In a way, which you could argue that it would be uh, better to help uh, help us to see the bottom, and then maybe things can get in get better afterwards but this kind of restrictions are really um, hindering the you would, you would say the price clearing process mm-hmm. Andrew where, where do you think the economy is overall now we've had all the PMI data out the official ones the Kaishin ones they seem to well the official ones showed that manufacturing was improving but still in contraction uh, the Kaishin survey shows that the services sector is now starting to slow slowest pace since December and their, their composite uh, PMIs hit a seven month low um, where what do you think of the state of the Chinese economy at the moment well, there, there are two things with the PMI indices. You know, leaving aside my, my traditional, I wouldn't say dislike, my traditional distrust for them, is they have been moving by small basis points. You know, going from uh, 51.2 to 51.3, it's not an improvement. <laughs> mm. It's not a deterioration. But, uh, so in other words, you really need to see some, some pretty, pretty chunky moves before you say we're really turning around the corner. So, as I said, I observe 18 separate indices in the Chinese economy, and uh, except one or two of them, practically everything is either going down, still positive by going down, or negative and going down, which is bad news. And only two or three of them are relatively flat. So, overall, the economy 
is not improving, unfortunately, if I mm. simply want to look at numbers only. Never mind what I think, never mind what I project, never mind whether some of the indices uh, are good indices, they are good guys as opposed to, to bad guys. And um, policymakers have got their, their job made up for them. It's not, it's not an easy task. And I feel always very constrained in coming forward with, uh, with suggestions for improvement. The only thing which makes a lot of sense to me, but clearly it is a political issue, is that with a fiscal deficit that used to be about 2.8 and now possibly will go to 3%, could go. China can double that easily and nobody will, will blink. Mm. Neither will. Okay, but that is, that is a political issue. Okay, they are not, they are not willing to go down that way. And they have a huge current account surplus, don't they? So they could easily spend money to, to, to boost the economy. They have, they have everything. It is, this is not uh, China becoming like Argentina, for example, mm. because Argentina always had a huge current account deficit. They had an enormous net debt overseas. China is not a net debtor. It mm. is not a net debtor. It's all its foreign exchange assets and everything else, including its current account surplus, adds up to a plus versus a minus. In other words, there's a net lender to the world. You know, net lenders don't go bankrupt. So why, why doesn't course, it get out the big bazooka and boost demand? It could do so, couldn't it? It has the resources to, to do it. Yeah. I, su I, suspect, I suspect it might be a mixture of both macho politics. In other words, we are not going to borrow our way out of that. Look what happened to the United States, and I'll come to that in a moment. And uh, the second part is expectations that other policy measures may very well work. In other words, twinkling, tinkling with, uh, with the monetary policy. Mm. Yeah, in, in a sense, one can see this, okay, that uh, big fiscal deficits might look a little bit as if it is an act of desperation, and it isn't. It's a very sensible policy act. But as I said, I'm not here to give advice to the, to the Chinese policymakers, except make the observations that they can well afford okay uh to open up the the fiscal solutions michelle what are, what are your thoughts on the state of the chinese economy and, and what the authorities ought to try and do to to support it more first of all i think um in august we should see some stabilization or even improvement at least um because if you look at the official manufacturing pmi the, it actually picked up a little bit and we observe other high frequency data that um, maybe the um, the weather factors was uh, was hindering the production activity in July, and that should dissipate somewhat. And the inventories should also be less of a drag. So um, I think the August data may improve a little bit after the well, of course, the terrible July. Um, second is that on the on the Tizing uh, services PMI or the official services PMI, it actually dropped uh, quite a bit. But I think uh, I don't. I'm not very concerned about that because the the way that the PMI is constructed is that every month uh, they ask people whether things have improved or deteriorated compared to the previous month. And given that the well, July was like before was very strong, right, after the reopening recovery. So it just tells us that we are close to the um, end of the reopening recovery. So it doesn't mean that the services are going down. Um, so I think um, the services should be doing okay in the in the near term. Well, not not better a lot compared to previously, but still doing okay. Um, but of course, overall, I, I don't deny that the, the economy is in a, is in a very weak uh, situation. 
um, because of the property sector drag and the sentiment on the consumers uh, are very weak. And um, I think what the government uh, should do is that, um, of course, the official deficit is very small, but actually they've done a lot of borrowing for the local government financing vehicles and um, they are spending a lot on the infrastructure. So I think um, it's really about how, what's the right way to spend the money. And I think the right way is really maybe provide some consumption support, like uh, what other economies have done like hong kong we have uh, like cash distribution uh, macau as well so i think there's um, actually something that the chinese government can do but i think the willingness for that is also very low given that um, they probably don't want to make people lazy and maybe spend more on uh, public services uh, some income support to the unemployed and uh, low income group and i think these are the things that the chinese government should do but um I think right now there's some there's some signs of it. For example, late, lately they have um, increased the uh, uh, tax deductions on the childcare and parental care, but uh, the amount is still very small. And yes, they are now cutting the mortgage interest rates even on the existing uh, mortgages. So something that they did uh, in 2008, the last time. So it is uh, shows that there's willingness for the, for them to to ease, but the amount is still going to be uh, quite small. I think. Um, maybe the support is going to be 0.2% of GDP. So I think right now they're still using um, a rather uh, piecemeal, like gradual approach to 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 try to see, uh, like let the economy to stabilize, um, uh, but not to turn around the economy. So I think that's the, just to buy more time. And um, I think maybe in 2024, when uh, if we see that the property sector uh, still does not uh, stabilized and maybe there's uh there's a uh, there's definitely more pressure for them to do more but uh, i think right now until the end of the year they still they're going to uh, uh stick with this approach at least yeah. okay andrew the big news overnight in the markets was the oil price rising above 90 dollars now it's at a 10-month high how problematic is this does this ca- change uh the calculations on uh, on inflation well, uh, here is a, a slightly off-the-wall view, because I'm absolutely obsessed with what's going to happen in COP28 in, this, in November, December, in the United Nations climate policy. And that is, of course, making oil more expensive. It's a good thing. Less of it is going to be consumed. Now, the impact on inflation invariably works only through one way. Right now, the major use of oil, more than about 28 29%, is transportation. So it hits, in fact, countries that are particularly dependent on uh, on road transport and therefore on the internal combustion engine, and that's the United States. So I'm not really concerned about inflation anywhere else, except any potential impact of that in the U.S. And that's bad news because, of course, it puts even further away the, the likelihood of a stabilization or an interest rate uh, cut. But as I said, this makes news. Yeah, make oil as expensive as possible and make people stop using it. It's one of the major pollutants. The other part is, is yes, it could affect inflation in the States. Ta-da! Mm. <laughs> okay, what, what do you think, Michelle? Is this going to cal- change the calculations for the Fed and other central banks? I mean, some people are saying oil is going to hit $100 a barrel fairly soon. 
Right. Um, for Asia, like uh, Korea and uh, Taiwan, we've already seen the upper surprise in the CPI given the rise in the oil prices recently. So I could imagine that if it's going to hit $100 per barrel, then that's more inflationary pressures. But I think um, I agree with Andrew that um, among all the economies, the only one that really have uh, uh, the trouble of a potential wage price spiral um, or upward inflationary momentum is really the U.S. Um, but right now, we're still forecasting that the, the Fed will the, is, well, has ended the hiking cycle, so no more hikes probably. We don't think the November is a, um, it's a likely call because uh, if you look at the employment data, um, it is softening. Um, but it could be delaying the timing of uh, rate cuts uh, in the next year. Andrew, what, what do you think? Is the Fed now on hold or um, is it going to have to reconsider maybe in November? I keep thinking what Powell said. Mind you, he said so many things that I don't know why I'm picking that one, which says I would be surprised if we're looking at inflation at 2 to 3% in the, in the year 25. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I've, uh, I've, I've gone fishing. You know, I stopped, I stopped bothering about forecasting when the Fed will or won't. Uh, change interest rates. It won't change interest rates. Still, inflation clearly is for several months down to two to three percent and staying there. And uh, uh, this is perhaps not just happening yet. So let's forget about this and do something else. Okay. We're not going to forecast correctly when the Fed when the Fed stops or cuts. Okay. So let's do something that we do know and can do. Um, and there are plenty of things that I'm doing. Thank you both very much. You heard there Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Michelle Lam, who is Greater China Economist at Societe Generale Corporate and Investment Banking. I'm joined now by Ross Feingold, who is Business Development Director at SafePro Group over in Taipei, Taiwan. Morning, Ross. Good morning. Now, Premier Li Jiang said Asia and the uh, said China and the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, known as ASEAN, have built strong ties, benefiting both sides amid strong global changes. He was speaking at the welcome ceremony uh, for the China ASEAN summit in Jakarta, and he said China and ASEAN have succeeded in blazing a correct path of good neighbourliness and friendship, as well as common development and prosperity, as the world is undergoing profound changes unseen in a century. Um, this. This meeting has been sort of a bit overshadowed, hasn't it, by the G20, which is coming up uh, at the weekend. But nevertheless, I mean, China and ASEAN, this is uh, an important relationship, isn't it? Strong trade ties, certainly between Beijing and the regional bloc. Yeah, the trade ties certainly are are very strong. And uh, a number of the ASEAN countries continue to welcome Chinese investment in a way that uh, we don't see uh, anymore in Western European countries or the United States. Almost kind of goes without saying at this point that they're not welcoming Chinese investment. Uh, But the ASEAN countries continue to welcome investment in most cases, and they continue to want to further develop trade uh, relations, whether that's their own exports to China or uh, uh, imports from China. Obviously, though, any discussion about, about China and ASEAN and the positive uh, that that the countries in ASEAN see in the relationship, at some point it gets uh, unavoidable to mention the South China Sea dispute. Uh, but then again, there this only involves some and not all of the ASEAN countries. 
Mm. I mean, it hasn't been helped, has it, by this map that China uh, produced that's uh, sort of an expanded territory that's upset quite a lot of uh, countries, both in ASEAN and also India as well in particular. Yes, but it does seem that, that the loudest criticism is is not necessarily from the governments in ASEAN, or, or you, specifically the governments that have uh, sovereignty or overlapping uh, claims, uh, just sovereignty disputes or overlapping claims with China, right? So, uh, yes, the, the Philippines has, has been more outspoken in uh, certainly this year uh, than it was in the first few months of President Marcos's administration and, and certainly more outspoken versus his predecessor. Uh, Duterte, uh, but but again, the the loudest complaints about the map does seem to be coming from outside the region. Mm. And Premier Lee is also going to take part in this so-called ASEAN Plus Three summit uh, with Japan and South Korea. Japan also wants to have separate talks with uh, with Premier Lee about the uh, uh, the 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 furore over the treated wastewater from the ruined Fukushima nuclear plant. What are relations like between these three countries? China seems to be more upset that uh, Japan and South Korea have been moving closer to the United States and want to try and reverse that. Yeah, that, 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 that troika there, they, they, they're not on the same page on a lot of issues. Uh, and part of that is a product simply of, of President Yoon being right of center. And right of center, Korean presidents have typically sought stronger relationships with Japan, so he's no different. Uh, there's certainly a lot of pressure from the United States that South Korea and Japan uh, draw closer on security issues. But uh, just just in, in you know, the course of this conversation, right, mentioning that, well, there was ASEAN, then there's the ASEAN plus three, and, and then there's ASEAN and its bilateral meetings and uh, this week with, with the representatives of the different countries. Uh, the, the East Asian summit, and Biden's not attending that. And, oh, and the G20. Wow, where does it end? Talk about summit overkill. Mm. <laughs> there have been a lot, haven't there? Um, at the moment. But are, are these meetings leading to anything concrete and productive um, at, at the end of them? For example, this uh, this ASEAN uh, summit, what, what is it trying to achieve? Uh, that's a great question. And uh, I, I think I'm becoming a summit skeptic because uh, a lot of these meetings just produce very similar statements to the previous meetings. And what happened uh, over the past couple of days with, with, with the ASEAN meeting specifically uh, with regard to Myanmar, where you know, there was all this attention focused on what's ASEAN going to do about Myanmar. And, well, they've been trying to do something, but sort of not really ever since the coup occurred over two years ago and, and violence continues uh, to grow. So all we see is uh, well, we still like our five-point uh, plan, and we hope that it gets implemented. But uh, really, uh, the the the, uh, the leaders in, in Myanmar have not shown much interest in the five-point plan. Uh, and then you'll get critics who say, "Well, ASEAN, you're just so weak." And same thing on trade as well. Even though you know, we just touched on that, how important it is to expand the trade relationship, uh, that, you know, from ASEAN perspective, uh, with. China. But on the other hand, uh, these countries are, uh, you know, a number of the countries are in CPTPP uh, or, or there's the RCEP, obviously. So these meetings this week aren't really the platform to talk about trade issues either. 
Mm. I mean, there are things they could do, aren't there, that they could work together on, on climate change, on debt relief, uh, on technology. There, there are many areas where um, their differences don't have to stop them uh, working together. But do, do you see any signs that they are moving forward on some of these issues? Uh, well, they certainly talk about them. Uh, but again, moving forward, often that's not going to happen in, 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 via these platforms because, you know, for example, climate change, there's, there's the COP uh, summit. Uh, you know, so, so again, it's not clear the effectiveness of, of, of these platforms. And I think we're actually going to see some coming out of this week's events, probably some more uh, complaints about you know, the ASEAN and these big meetings, with, you know, whether it's its own internal leaders meeting uh, or the ASEAN plus three, uh, ASEAN's bilateral meetings with China and the other countries and the East Asian summit. Uh, I'm sure I'm not going to be the only one suffering from fatigue. Mm. Well, of course, the big event over the weekend is the G20 summits in uh, New Delhi. And of course, it's all been overshadowed by the news that President Xi Jinping isn't going to attend uh, this meeting. So how much does that undermine the whole uh, G20? It's not ideal if you really want to get something done or some of the other leaders were going uh, as much for the G20 as the chance to have a bilateral, just a one-on-one -on -one with Xi Jinping for an hour. And I think some of the countries would have liked to have done that uh, if he was there. Uh, so sure, you know, it's, it's, a, it's one of the <laughs> most important economies, obviously. And, and uh, uh, people do want to talk to Xi Jinping and he's not there. Uh, and also the decision was made you know, relatively late, right, just days away when some of the other leaders that, you know, were locked into attending. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if, if anyone holds a grudge. One thing I'll say, though, is we're probably going to see all sorts of, uh, frankly, silly speculation, uh, unfounded rumors about why he didn't attend. You know, maybe it was a strategic decision that they, you know, the Chinese leadership and she felt that uh, you know, we're going to get some negative attention where Wherever she goes, there's there's all sorts of criticism uh, from media. So you know, why why bother this time? Uh, but but again, we're, we're probably going to see all sorts of unfounded speculation by so-called experts about why he didn't go. Well, there's, there's a lot of it going around. But do you think, I mean, on those bilateral meetings, do you think maybe that is a reason why he doesn't want to attend? Because he's got to have these bilateral meetings with a number of countries that are being seen as being unfriendly towards China, like the US, like India, like like the UK. So the optics of those meetings are just not going to be very, very good for China, are they? Well, there certainly would be in the, those countries, if their leader was, were to meet Xi Jinping uh, in a bilateral on the sidelines of the G20, there'd be lots of criticism, right? You know, why didn't you bring up this issue? Why'd you stand there and smile and shake his hand? So there would definitely be that, but there wouldn't necessarily be that, or it's highly unlikely there would be that domestically in China. So uh, again, I think you know, maybe he just felt it wasn't worth it because of uh, you know, again, the negative media coverage outside of China. Um, and uh, there's the upcoming APEC meeting, and he's got to decide whether or not he wants to go to that as well. Mm. And, and what is the role of India in all of this? I mean, India obviously wants to promote itself through the G20. It's uh, its growing economy. It also seems to be trying to um, promote a, a different world order from what China sees itself uh, as promoting. And India sort of sees its its role as being a bridge, if you like, between the West and, and China, doesn't it? it? It's become very adept at the moment at sort of playing off both sides against each other. 
And uh, yeah, consistent with the point you just made is also India's policy on on Russia's invasion of Ukraine and India's willingness to continue to, uh, frankly, do business with with Russia uh, and not uh, join the Western countries, in the United States, who in this most uh, you know, stringent sanctions that those countries have implemented. Um, but but at a minimum, if we could just sort of simplify what hosting the G20 means for India. You just want it to go well, right? You you just want uh, no snafus to happen, uh, you know, no traffic problems or protests or anything like that. Uh, and, and inevitably, you'll get some positive press coverage because there'll, there'll be lots of media in the West that will say something like, "This is India's coming out moment," sort of like people said with with China when it hosted the 2008 Olympics. So I, I think for for Prime Minister Modi, not necessarily looking for any great agreements or statements from the G20 leaders. And the G20 leaders will probably say the same kind of stuff they say all the time, right? We're concerned about Ukraine. We're concerned about the climate. We're going to work together. Uh, so for India, I'd say you could call it a victory as long as the meetings go very smoothly from more of a, from like a logistical, technical perspective. But it also needs to come to some conclusion, doesn't it? And, and put out um, a statement at the end of it. It's not looking easy that they can try and find some consensus on on almost any of the of the contentious issues. That's why they'll continue to. The statement will say, uh, "Yeah, we continue to be concerned about fill in the blank, and we, we can we're going to continue to work together about fill in the blank." Mm. Uh, and it'll just be very similar to the previous G twenty statements. And and what about um, in the aftermath now of Gina Raimondo's visit uh, to China? Is there any sign of things improving at all between the U.S. and, and China? Uh, at the moment, I would have to say no. Um, nothing was really achieved by her trip. And I think a lot of us sort of expected that to be what the outcome would be beforehand. And that it, it just crashes up against the Biden administration's uh, endless desire to have dialogue for the sake of dialogue. So they think it's good uh, that she went. But with all the tension in the relationship, the, the likelihood that there'd be any great uh, outcomes was was remote. Um, you know, there, there are tiny things that, that one might say uh, are, are uh, productive for the relationship. For example, the announcement a few weeks Weeks ago, about increasing the number of flights, and uh, for, you know, for 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 the business world, that's good. For for American companies that still have business in China, then having easier access, making it easier to get there, uh, certainly helps. It's you know, it, uh, that, you know adds efficiencies. Um, but that was not announced at Ramondo's trip. Right? It was announced beforehand. Uh, so. Yeah, what did she really achieve from this uh, other than earn a lot of criticism from Republicans in Congress? Uh, I wouldn't even say it remains to be seen. I would just say uh, uh, it's probably going to be like Blinken and, and uh, uh, Yellen and Kerry's trips uh, over the previous few months. You're not going to get much out of it. The, the differences are still too great. Okay, well, thank you very much, Ross. Good to talk to you. That's Ross Feingold, who is Business Development Director at SafePro Group over in Taipei. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Friday's show, I'm joined by John Schofield, Managing Director of Tempest Investment, and Sunil Kashap, Director of FinMet, with a view from Australia, is Toby Lawson, CEO at Staten Partners. Please join me again tomorrow. Money Talk.